Section 12 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 3, Part 4. At the end of that time, the dark conclave returned. Colonel Axtell, who was literally the whipper-in of the military, assisted by a few roundhead officers, had marvelously exerted himself during the recess, and by the means of kicks, cuffs, and his cudgel, had prevailed on the troopers to raise yells of, Justice! Justice! Execution! Execution! Mingled with the tumult were plainly heard the piteous prayers of the people of, God save the king! God keep him from his enemies! In the midst of the confusion, the sentence was passed, and the king, who in vain endeavored to remonstrate, was dragged away by the soldiers who surrounded him. As he was forced down the stairs, the grossest personal insults were offered him. Some of the troopers blew their tobacco smoke in his face. Some spit on him. All yelled in his ears, Justice! Execution! The real bitterness of death to a man of Charles I's exquisite sensitiveness in regard to his personal dignity must have occurred in that transit. The block, the axe, the scaffold, and all their ghastly adjuncts could be met and were met with calmness. The spittings and buffetings of a brutal mob were harder to be borne. The king recovered his serenity before he arrived at the place where his sedan stood. How could it be otherwise? The voices of his affectionate people, in earnest prayers for his deliverance, rose high above the brutal tumult. One soldier close to him echoed the cry of the people, God help and save your majesty. His commander struck him to the earth. Poor fellow, said the king. It is a heavy blow for a small offense. To the hired hootings of the military mob, he replied coolly, Poor souls, they would say the same to their generals for sixpence. As the royal victim approached his chair, his bearers pulled off their hats and stood in reverential attitudes to receive him. This unbought homage again roused the wrath of Axtell, who, with blows of his indefatigable cudgel, vainly endeavored to prevail on the poor men to cover their heads. Whether his arm was tired with its patriotic exertions that day, or whether he found the combativeness of the laboring class of his countrymen indomitable, is not decided, but it is certain that the bearers persisted in their original determination. As Axtell followed the king's chair down King Street, the spectators called to him, Do you have our king carried in a common hired chair, like one who hath the plague? God help him out of such hands as yours. As soon as the king arrived at Whitehall, Hark ye, said he to Herbert, my nephew, that is Charles Louis, Prince Palatine, and a few lords here, who are attached to me, will do all in their power to see me. I thank them, but my time is short and precious, and must be devoted to preparation. I hope my friends will not take offense because I refuse to see anyone but my children. All that those who love me can do for me now is to pray for me. It appears that the fanatical buffoon, Hugh Peters, was very anxious to intrude his spiritual aid on his majesty, and would have thrust his abhorred person into his presence, but was expelled by Colonel Tomlinson, the humane and manly commander of the guard. Several of the sentinels posted within the king's bedroom endeavored to smoke tobacco and practice other annoyances, but were prevented by Tomlinson, for whose conduct Charles was most grateful. 
permission was to be obtained from the regicide conclave before the king could either see his children or receive religious aid according to his own belief. The night of his condemnation, he was deprived of rest by the knocking of the workmen who were commencing the scaffold for his execution. In the restless watches of that perturbed night, Charles finished his verses, found among the papers of his kinsman, the Duke of Hamilton. The last lines appear to have been written after his sentence. There is in them the pathos of truth. Their ruggedness arises from being cast in the sapphic meter, which is nearly impracticable in our language. Great monarch of the world, from whose gift springs all the puissance and the might of kings, record the royal woe this sad verse sings. Nature and law, by thy divine decree, the only root of righteous royalty, with my dim diadem invested me. The fiercest furies which do daily tread upon my grief, my great discrowned head, are those who to my bounty owe their bread. Churchmen are chained, and schismatics are freed, mechanics preach, and holy fathers bleed. The crown is crucified with the creed. My royal consort, from whose fruitful womb so many princes legally have come, is forced in pilgrimage to seek a tomb. Great Britain's heir is forced into France, whilst o'er his father's head his foes advance. Poor child, he weeps out his inheritance. With mine own power, my majesty they wound, in the king's name, the king himself's uncrowned, so doth the dust destroy the diamond. Felons obtain more privilege than I, they are allowed to answer ere they die, tis death for me to ask the reason why. Yet, sacred Saviour, with thy words, I woo thee to forgive, and not be bitter to such, as thou knowest, know not what they do. Augment my patience, nullify my hate, preserve my children, and inspire my mate, yet though we perish, bless this church and state. The king was removed from Whitehall, Sunday, January 28th, to St. James's Palace, where he heard Bishop Juxton preach in the private chapel. I wanted to preach to the poor wretch, said the absurd fanatic, Hugh Peters, in great indignation, but the poor wretch would not hear me. When Bishop Juxton entered the presence of his captive sovereign, he gave way to the most violent burst of sorrow. Compose thyself, my lord, said the king. We have no time to waste on grief. Let us rather think of the great matter. I must prepare to appear before God, to whom, in a few hours, I have to render my account. I hope to meet death with calmness, and that you will have the goodness to render me your assistance. Do not let us speak of the men in whose hands I have fallen. They thirst for my blood, they shall have it. God's will be done, I give him thanks. Forgive them all sincerely, but let us say no more about them. It was with the greatest difficulty that the two sentinels appointed by the regicidal junta could be kept on the other side of the door, while his majesty was performing his devotions. They opened it every two or three minutes, to see that he had not escaped. At the dawn of the next day, the king was up and ready to commence his devotions with the bishop, who came to St. James's soon after. The royal children arrived from Sion House to see their parent for the last time. He had not been indulged with the sight of them since his captivity to the army, and on the morrow he was to die. The Princess Elizabeth burst into a passion of tears at the sight of her father, and her brother, the little Duke of Gloucester, wept as fast for company. The royal father consoled and soothed them, and when he had solemnly blessed them, he drew them to his bosom. 
the young princess, who was but twelve, has left her reminiscences of this touching interview in manuscript. It were pity that the king's words should be given in any other but her simple narrative, which is endorsed. What the king said to me on the 29th of January, 1648, the last time I had the happiness to see him. He told me that he was glad I was come, for, though he had not time to say much, yet somewhat he wished to say to me, which he could not to another, and he feared that the cruelty was too great to permit his writing. But, sweetheart, he added, thou wilt forget what I tell thee. Then shedding abundance of tears, continues the princess, I told him that I would write down all he said to me. He wished me, he said, not to grieve and torment myself for him, for it was a glorious death he should die, it being for the laws and religion of the land. He told me what books to read against popery. He said that he had forgiven all his enemies, and he hoped God would forgive them also, and he commanded us and the rest of my brothers and sisters to forgive them also. Above all, he bade me tell my mother, that his thoughts had never strayed from her, and that his love for her would be the same to the last. With all he commanded me, and my brother, to love her, and be obedient to her. He desired me not to grieve for him, for he should die a martyr, and that he doubted not, but God would restore the throne to his son, and that then we should be all happier than we could possibly have been, if he had lived. Then, taking my brother Gloucester on his knee, he said, Sweetheart, now will they cut off thy father's head. Upon which the child looked very steadfastly upon him. Heed, my child, what I say. They will cut off my head, and perhaps make thee a king. But mark what I say. You must not be a king, as long as your brothers Charles and James live. Therefore I charge you, do not be made a king by them. At which the child, sighing deeply, replied, I will be torn in pieces first. And these words, coming so unexpectedly from so young a child, rejoiced my father exceedingly. And his majesty spoke to him of the welfare of his soul, and to keep his religion, commanding him to fear God, and he would provide for him. All which the young child earnestly promised. The king fervently kissed and blessed his children, and called to Bishop Juxton to take them away. The children sobbed aloud. The king leant his head against the window, trying to repress his tears, when catching a view of them as they went through the door, he hastily came from the window, snatching them again to his breast, kissed and blessed them once more, then tearing himself from their tears and caresses, he fell on his knees and strove to calm, by prayer, the agony of that parting. While this tender interview took place between King Charles and his bereaved children, the regicides sat in secret conclave to determine on the hour and manner of their victim's death. It was with the greatest difficulty that the junta could be gathered together. When they were driven in by a small knot of thoroughgoing destructives, there was greater difficulty to induce them to sign. Cromwell, whose general demeanor always appeared as if stimulated by strong drink, seems that morning to have fortified his spirits beyond the restraints of caution. After he had written his name, he smeared the ink all over Henry Martin's face, who instantly returned the compliment ten or twelve of the persons, among whom was Colonel Downs, afterwards pleaded that their signatures were extorted by him under threats of death, and as they proved their assertions, when times changed, their lives were spared in consequence. Colonel Inglesby, who had positively refused to sit as judge, 
happened to come into the room on business, on which Cromwell, who was his cousin, sprung on him, and dragged him forward with bursts of laughter, saying, This time thou shalt not escape. And with much laughing and romping, assisted by several others, put the pen in his hand, and guided it while he affixed his name. On the night preceding the awful day, Charles I was blessed with calm and refreshing sleep. He awoke before daybreak, and hearing sighs and moans, he drew his curtain and saw, by the light of a great cake of wax, which burnt in a silver basin, that his faithful Herbert, who slept in his room on a pallet, was troubled by the unrest of a fearful dream. The king spoke to Herbert, and he awoke. Under the agitation of the direful matter impending, Herbert had dreamed, that Laud, in his pontifical habit, had entered the apartment, had knelt to the king, that they conversed, the king looked pensive, the archbishop sighed, and on retiring, fell prostrate. Herbert related this vision, on which Charles observed, The dream is remarkable, but he is dead. Had we conferred together, it is possible, albeit I love him well, that I might have said somewhat, which would have caused his sigh. I will now rise, added the king, I have a great work to do this day. Herbert's hands trembled while combing the king's hair. Charles, observing that it was not arranged so well as usual, said, Nay, though my head be not to stand long on my shoulders, take the same pains with it that you were wont to do. Herbert, this is my second marriage day. I would be as trim today as may be. The cold was intense that season, and the king desired to have a warm additional shirt. For, continued he, the weather is sharp, and probably may make me shake. I would have no imputation of fear, for death is not terrible to me. I bless my God, I am prepared. Let the rogues come whenever they please. He observed that he was glad that he had slept at St. James's, for the walk through the park would circulate his blood and counteract the numbness of the cold. Bishop Juxton arrived by the dawn of day. He prayed with the king and read to him the 27th chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. My lord, asked the king, did you choose this chapter as applicable to my situation? I beg your majesty to observe, said the bishop, that it is the gospel of the day as the calendar indicates. The king was deeply affected and continued his prayers with increased fervor. At ten o'clock the summons came to conduct the king to Whitehall, and he went down into the park through which he was to pass. Ten companies of infantry formed a double line on each side of his path. The detachment of halberdiers preceded him, with banners flying and drums beating. On the king's right hand was the bishop. On the left, with head uncovered, walked Colonel Tomlinson. The humanity and kindness of this gentleman were acknowledged by the king with the utmost gratitude. He gave him a gold at Tui, as a token of remembrance, and requested that he would not leave him till all was over. The king discoursed with him on his funeral, and said that he wished the Duke of Richmond and the Earl of Hertford to have the care of it. The king walked through the park, as was his wont, at a quick, lively pace. He wondered at the slowness of his guard, and called out pleasantly, Come, my good fellows, step on a pace. One of the officers asked him, if it was true that he had concurred with the Duke of Buckingham in causing his father's death. My friend, replied Charles, with gentle contempt, if I had no other sin than that, as God knows, I should have little need to beg his forgiveness at this hour. 
The question has been cited as an instance of premeditated cruelty and audacity on the part of the officer. By the time and place, and the mildness of the king's answer, the questioner must have been Tomlinson, who evidently had become, in the course of his guardship of a few days, the king's ardent admirer. He had been prejudiced, like many others, by the absurd scandal that Charles had conspired with Buckingham and had poisoned James I. This falsehood was probably invented by the enemies who accused James I of poisoning his son Henry. Absurd as these tales appear, the systematic slanders of that day, in the absence of all wholesome information from the public press, had a direful effect on the prosperity of the royal family. As the king drew near Whitehall Palace, he pointed to a tree in the park and said, to either Juxton or Tomlinson, that tree was planted by my brother Henry. There was a broad flight of stairs from the park, by which access was gained, to the ancient palace of Whitehall. It is expressly said by Herbert, that the king entered the palace that way, and that he ascended the stairs with a light step, passed through the long gallery, and gained his own bedroom, where he was left with Bishop Juxton, who administered the communion to him. Nye and Godwin, two independent ministers, knocked at the door, and tendered their spiritual assistance. Say to them frankly, said the king, that they have so often prayed against me, that they shall not pray with me in mine agony. But if they will pray for me now, tell them I shall be thankful. Dinner had been prepared for the king at Whitehall. He refused to eat. Sir, said Juxton, you have fasted long today. The weather is so cold that faintness may occur. You are right, replied the king, and took a piece of bread and a glass of wine. Now, said the king cheerfully, let the rascals come. I forgive them and am quite ready. But the rascals were not ready. A series of contests had taken place regarding the executioner and the warrant to him. Moreover, the military commanders, Hunks and Fayer, appointed to superintend the bloody work, resisted alike the scoffings, the jests and threats of Cromwell, and had their names scratched out of the warrant, and Hunks refused to write or sign the order to the executioner. This dispute occurred just before the execution took place. Hunks was one of the officers who guarded the king on his trial, and had been chosen for that purpose as the most furious of his foes. He had, like Tomlinson, become wholly altered from the result of his personal observations. Colonel Axtell and Colonel Hewson had, the preceding night, convened a meeting of thirty-eight stout sergeants of the army, to whom they proposed that whosoever among them would aid the hangman in disguise should have one hundred pounds and rapid promotion in the army. Everyone separately refused with disgust. Late in the morning of the execution, Colonel Hewson prevailed on a sergeant in his regiment, one Hewlett, to undertake the detestable office, and while this business was in progress, Elijah Axtell, brother of the colonel, went by water to Rosemary Lane, beyond the tower, and dragged from thence the reluctant hangman, Gregory Brandon, who was by threats and the promise of thirty pounds, in half-crowns, induced to strike the blow. The disguises of the executioners were hideous, and must have been imposed for the purpose of trying the firmness of the royal victim. They wore coarse woolen garbs, buttoned close to the body, which was the costume of butchers at that era. Hewlett added a long gray peruke and a black mask, with a large gray beard affixed to it. Gregory Brandon wore a black mask, a black peruke, and a large flapped black hat, looped in front. 
a horrible butchery was meditated in case of the king's personal resistance, for by the advice of Hugh Peters, staples were driven into the floor to fasten him down to the scaffold. The king, meantime, had had the satisfaction of receiving a letter from his son Charles by Mr. Seymour, a special messenger, enclosing a carte blanche with his signature to be filled up at pleasure. In this paper, the prince bound himself to any terms, if his royal father's life might be spared. It must have proved a cordial to the king's heart to find in that dire hour how far family affection prevailed over ambition. The king carefully burnt the carte blanche, lest any evil use might be made of it, and did not attempt to bargain for his life by means of concessions for his heir. It was past one o'clock before the grisly attendants and apparatus of the scaffold were ready. Hacker knocked on the door of the king's chamber. Bishop Juxton and Herbert fell on their knees. Rise, my old friend, said Charles, holding out his hand to the bishop, and he ordered Herbert to open the door. Hacker led the king through the present banqueting hall, at the further end of which a window had been taken out, and a passage constructed, which led to the scaffold raised on the street. The noble bearing of the king, as he stepped on the scaffold, his beaming eyes and high expression, were noticed by all who saw him. He looked on all sides for his people, but dense masses of soldiery only presented themselves far and near. He was out of hearing of any persons, but Juxton and Herbert, save those who were interested in his destruction. The soldiers preserved a dead silence. This time they did not insult him. The distant populace wept, and occasionally raised mournful cries in blessings and prayers for him. The king addressed a short speech to the bishop and to Colonel Tomlinson, which last person stood near the king, and yet screened from the sight of all the world, in the entrance of the passage which led into the banqueting hall. The substance of the speech that the king made was to point out that every institution of the original constitution of England, as the church, lords, and commons, had been subverted with the sovereign power, that if he would have consented to reign by the mere despotism of the sword, he might have lived and remained king. Therefore he died a martyr for the liberties of the people of England. He added that he died a Christian of the church of England, in the rights of which he had just participated. While he was speaking, someone touched the axe, which laid enveloped in the black crepe on the block. The king turned round hastily and exclaimed, Have a care of the axe. If the edge is spoiled, it will be the worse for me. The executioner, Gregory Brandon, drew near to him, and kneeling before him, entreated his forgiveness. No, said the king, I forgive no subject of mine who comes deliberately to shed my blood. Charles had probably guessed the cause of the delay of his execution in the trepidation of the executioner, and thought that if the man refused to perform the bloody task, there might arise a diversion in his favor. In that case, the other masked ruffian, Sergeant Hewlett, would, there is no doubt, have perpetrated the murder, and was placed there for the purpose, lest the firmness of the common executioner failed in action. Nevertheless, the king spoke as become his duty as chief magistrate and the source of the laws, which were violated in his murder. The wretched Brandon might have revenged himself by mangling his royal victim. On the contrary, he was convinced of the justice of the answer, and behaved most reverentially to him on the scaffold. The king put up his flowing hair under a cap, then turning to the executioner, asked, Is any of my hair in the way? 
I beg your majesty to push it more under your cap, replied the man, bowing. The bishop assisted his royal master to do so, and observed to him, There is but one stage more, which, though turbulent and troublesome, is yet a very short one. Consider, it will carry you a great way, even from earth to heaven. I go, replied the king, from a corruptible to an incorruptible crown, where no disturbance can take place. He then threw off his cloak and George, the latter he gave to Juxton, saying, with emphasis, Remember. No explanation of which mysterious injunction has ever been given. He then took off his coat and put on his cloak, and, pointing to the block, said to the executioner, Place it so that it will not shake. It is firm, sir, replied the man. I shall say a short prayer, said the king, and when I hold out my hands thus, strike. The king stood in profound meditation, said a few words to himself, looked upwards on the heavens, then knelt and laid his head on the block. In about a minute, he stretched out his hands, and his head was severed at one blow. A simultaneous groan of agony arose from the assembled multitude at the moment when the fatal blow fell on the neck of Charles I. It was the protest of an outraged people, suffering equally with their monarch under military tyranny, and those who heard that cry recalled it with horror to their deaths. When the king's head fell, Hewlett, the gray-beard mask, came forward to earn his bribe and subsequent promotion. He held up the bleeding head and uttered, This is the head of a traitor. A deep, angry murmur from the people followed the announcement. Two troops of horse, advancing in different directions, dispersed the indignant crowd, the royal corpse was placed in a coffin, and followed by Bishop Juxton and Herbert, was carried into the palace of Whitehall, where Cromwell came to see it. He considered it attentively, and taking up the head, to make sure that it was severed from the body, said, This was a well-constituted frame, and promised long life. Crowds of people beset the palace, but very few were admitted to see the corpse of their murdered monarch, over which Colonel Axtell, the person who was so peculiarly active in his destruction, kept guard. Sir Purbeck Temple, with infinite difficulty, and by making great interest, was admitted to see the remains of the king. As the coffin was enclosed, Axtell said, If thou thinkest there is any holiness in it, look there. And the king, added Sir Purbeck Temple, seemed to smile as in life. The body was conveyed to St. James's Palace to be embalmed. Here it remained till February 7th, when it was conveyed for interment to Windsor, followed by Bishop Juxton and the attached gentleman who had attended on the king in all his wanderings. The king had expressed a wish to be interred by his father in the royal chapel at Westminster Abbey, but Cromwell forbade it, having, for an absurd species of ambition, reserved that place for himself. He answered, that opening the vaults at Westminster Abbey would prove an encouragement to superstition. He probably dreaded the excitement of the populace. When the royal hearse, with its poor escort of four mourning coaches, arrived at Windsor Castle, the coffin was placed for the night in the king's late bedchamber, and the next day brought down into the noble hall of St. George. Four bearers of gentle blood, belonging to the king's late household, in deep mourning, carried the coffin on their shoulders, the pall was sustained by the Duke of Richmond, the Earl of Hertford, and the Lords Lindsay and Southampton. The most profound sorrow was visible in their countenances. 
The afternoon had been clear and bright till the coffin was carried out of the hall, when snow began to fall so fast and thick, that by the time the corpse entered the west end of the royal chapel, the black velvet pall was entirely white, the color of innocency. So went our king, white to his grave, said the sorrowful servants of Charles I. The roundhead witch caught, the governor of the regal seat of Windsor, rudely interrupted Bishop Juxton, who with open book met the coffin reverentially. Witchcott prevented him from reading the beautiful service of the Church of England as profane and papistical. It was found, withal, that no inscription had been placed on the royal coffin. One of the gentlemen present supplied this want by a simple but effectual expedient. A band of sheet lead was procured, and they cut out of it with penknives, spaces in the forms of large letters, so that the words, Charles Rex, 1648, could be read. The leaden band was then lapped round the coffin. Half blinded with their tears, and with the gloom of impending night, thick with falling snow, the faithful friends and servants of Charles I lowered his coffin among that portion of England's royal dead who repose at Windsor, and left him there without either singing or saying, or even the power of ascertaining the precise spot where he was laid. The mourning people of Charles I wrote many elegies on the deep tragedy of his death, which was perpetrated before their eyes and in their despite. The following lines preserve some forgotten historical traits. They were evidently written at the moment, and are valuable, because they identified the tradition that the wife of Cromwell, a good and virtuous matron, shared in the general grief for the murder of her king. The first couplet alludes to an assertion of some of the rebels in their treaties, that they would make Charles I the most glorious monarch in Christendom. They made him glorious, but the way they marked him out was Golgotha. The tears of our new pilot's wife could not avail to save his life. They were outbalanced with the cry and the clamor of crucify. The sons of dragons that did sit at Westminster contrived it, and the vile purchase crew will have their sovereign hurried to the grave, cause from that conclave came the cry, it was expedient he should die. Him they delivered to the hands of those accursed bloody bands, to make his sufferings more complete. He suffered too, without the gate. The king is dead, the kingdom's hearts thus cry, though the law says the king doth never die, but laws had died before his blood was spilt. Therefore, as he was ready to lay down, his mortal for a true immortal crown. This his own epitaph, he left behind, which men and angels to his glory sing. The People's Martyr and the People's King The trial, death, and burial of Charles I had taken place before the queen, besieged as she was in Paris, could receive the least intelligence of these awful incidents. End of section 12